0: When we come to a retreat like this, we come into a place and a time that has a very fixed format. Silence, sitting and walking, following a schedule, and doing sitting meditation, walking meditation. And over the course of just even two days like this has been, we have a great variety of experience. What is the benefit of all of this? What have we learned to do here? Breathe, walk slow, live in a community and not talk? Is that what we learn by coming on retreat? What can you take from this weekend? What can you take home to use? What can you show your housemates or your partner? And how can you integrate whatever you have gained here and find some use for it in your life? I wanna speak about three areas in response to these questions, which we all ask ourselves at some time. I wanna speak about the understanding or wisdom that one gains being On retreat or practicing insight. I want to speak about attitudes of mind which are helpful in our daily life. And I want to speak about specific behavior or actions that one can do to begin to integrate or bring awareness and mindfulness into our life. First, the wisdom of the understanding, from what I have spoken about on opening night and last night, and in response to questions in here in the hall or in the small group discussions, you can get a sense of some of the underlying understanding behind this practice and where this practice might take you as far as understanding your own life. And these facts and information and discussions and talks are no doubt helpful because they help point the mind towards an understanding that is beneficial. It can help to clarify some doubts that you might have about meditation or insight practice. And you can learn some things or you can hear of some understandings that you haven't previously known. And so there is some benefit to them. But most of what I have said can be found in books. There's a number of meditation books and books on Buddhism and whatnot that will say the same thing in so many words. So it's not unavailable, but you might have to look for it. This information is all useful and helpful, and it's not insignificant. However, it's not enough. That level of understanding doesn't really touch us where it counts. So, another area of understanding or another area of experience that you have is what you have experienced in your actual practice here. The sitting and feeling whatever it is you feel, discovering the nature of your own mind and the nature of your own body. How your body feels in sitting and what it goes through. What goes on in your mind when you start paying attention. This information or this that you know about yourself is the truth. It's empirical, it's you have observed it and you have known it intimately by directing your mind to know this type of information. You may not be able to understand it, you may not be able to put it into any uh, broad uh, cosmological significant anything, because after all it is just paying attention to rising, falling, wandering mind, pain in the knee. What's so important about that? But that knowledge or that understanding that you have about the nature of your mind and body from your own experience, whatever that information is, is something that you know. And no one can take it away from you. Who can tell you now that your mind is different than you have experienced it? Who can tell you that your body is different than you have experienced it? No one. That information is in there and whether you know it or not, that knowledge will inform your actions, inform your decisions, inform your behavior after you leave here. You you may forget the experience, hopefully we'll forget most of it, that pain is nothing special. However. It imprints, or it puts, a, uh, a knowledge of who you are, what you are, the nature of the mind-body in there that continually operates, whether you bring it to consciousness or not. This understanding of the mind and body is so simple. And it is so profound. You cannot read this knowledge. You cannot find this knowledge in a book. Who could tell you about the nature of your mind in a book? And if you read it, would you believe it? I want to point out some of what you have seen, whether you were able to put it into words or not, but I spoke briefly about it this morning a little bit. In sitting and walking and just being here with yourself and paying attention, one thing that we discover real quick is that everything is changing. Mental states come and go. Physical experience come and go. The breath comes and goes. Mindfulness itself comes and goes. Happiness comes and goes. Sadness comes and goes. Everything is arising and passing away. It appears in the mind for a moment and it's gone. Sometime later other conditions come together and something else appears in the mind. It's there for a moment, we experience it and then it's gone. If we understand what that really means in our life, we won't expect things to stay the same change in our life won't be unexpected. We won't need to resist the change which inevitably comes. We won't expect the happiness of this moment to last forever. We won't expect the security that we feel now to last forever. Nor will we believe that caught in a fear that this is the way it's going to be. Because we know from experience, that everything changes. Things arise for a period of time. They appear, they are experienced, and then they leave. You've seen it, you know it. That is not an insignificant experience. It will inform your life hereafter to know that everything changes. We've also discovered that much of what we experience is not very pleasant. Or, let's put it another way, it doesn't provide us a sense of satisfaction and fulfillment. Have any of the meditation experiences, have any of the mindfulness, or the good clarity, or? the concentration, or the stillness, or the calmness, or anything. Have they brought you a sense of fulfillment, of satisfaction, of completion, of contentment, of ease? No. Or if they did for a minute, or two, or a whole sitting, where is it now? There is not, in our experience of the mind and the body, there is not within that a source of contentment, of satisfaction, of permanent fulfillment. We know that. We might not be able to put it into words, but we have experienced that. That knowledge, that wisdom, let it inform your life. Understand that, yes, we'll struggle and strive and want and get and do and become and learn and go and grow and do what? Don't ask of it to provide you a sense of ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction in life. It won't. Nothing can. You don't have to believe it because I'm saying it and it's not dogma it's your own experience. If you look deeply into your own experience, you'll see that's what your experience is telling you. Things change. There isn't to be found a sense of permanent fulfillment and contentment within it. Another thing that we've discovered is that it's really not under our control. Our mind and our body is not ours. Our mind has a mind of its own. We don't control it. At first, and for some of us, that can be a frightening uh, realization. I'm out of control. I'm not responsible. What's happening to me? I'm a victim." On the other hand, it can be ultimately liberating to realize that since it's out of control, in one sense we don't have to feel guilty about what comes up. All we need to do is be with it, pay attention to it, act wisely from that knowledge. If my mind and body is out of control, person that just got angry at me, their mind's out of control too. They may not know it. I can have compassion for them for not knowing that. This knowledge, this understanding that we get from just sitting and watching our own mind and body, opens our heart to other people. When we see our own difficulty to be with our own mind and body, with some degree of acceptance, tolerance, patience, um, love for ourselves, how can we not have care, concern, love and appreciation for others who also have a mind and a body out of control? So things change. There's not a sense of fulfillment or contentment, satisfaction within them, and it's not under our control. It's out of our control. This knowledge, this information, this wisdom is not insignificant, and you may not even remember it. After you leave here and the talk's talk's over, if somebody asked you what you know, nothing. didn't learn anything. But that's not so. It sticks around. If we, however, can begin to see in our life, outside of here, in our daily life, in our relationships with people, in our interactions with ourself, our own mind and body, we begin to recognize these characteristics of all experience. We can live with greater wisdom and greater sensitivity to ourselves and to others. And in fact, practice itself, the whole path of practice is really none other than a deepening realization of these characteristics throughout all of our life. And as we practice and and become stiller and clearer and seeing our own mind in more detail with greater understanding we reach more profound understandings of the significance of impermanence, insubstantiality, unsatisfactoriness of experience. This is not a belief. I'm not asking you to believe that things change. I'm not asking you to believe that your mind and body are out of your control. And I'm not asking you to believe that These experiences don't provide satisfaction. Look within your own experience. And this the Buddha taught. Look within your own experience to see if it's so or not. If it's so, act from that knowledge, that wisdom. If it's not, let it go. So what's the purpose of coming here? Having some experience and going home. I want to read a short excerpt from the book, Mount Analog. Mount Analog is a story about spiritual pilgrims that go in search of a um, a spiritual mountain that that cannot be seen. My name of the mountain is Mount Analog. It says, you cannot stay on the summit forever. You have to come down again. So why bother in the first place? Just this. What is above knows what is below. But what is below does not know what is above. One climbs and one sees. One descends and one sees no longer. But one has seen. There is an art of conducting oneself in the lower region by the memory of what one saw higher up. When one no longer sees, one can at least still know. And what we do here is walk to the summit, take a look around, see what is going on in our life, where our life is taking place, and then we come back and go home. So this is the wisdom, this is the understanding that we can take from here, from our experience here. There are several attitudes or considerations to keep in mind. Helpful when you're here, helpful in our life outside of here. There are perspectives on... Um, our experience, our life. And they help to they help us to wake up. They help us to come into balance with the experience in our life. And the first of these is to be patient. We live in the age of instant everything. And, you know, like anything else, we want instant awareness, instant enlightenment, you know? Quick, give it to me so I can get on with something else. And we are not a culture and our conditioning in this society is not one of developing patience and tolerance. And it's something that we really need to seriously consider in our life, is to develop, is how we can develop patience Patience is the ability to be with things as they are right now. That is love. Love is not something out there once it changes. Once this changes, love is out there. Love is in this moment of being with what is. To be patient, one really needs to take a long-range perspective on one's life and not seek nor expect instant gratification for every wish or every desire that crosses the mind. We've had years of uh, searching for and reaching for and getting instant or very near instant gratification for all of our desires, and what has it got us? One more desire, for wakefulness, for awakening, for for freedom, for understanding. <clears throat> cannot make the mind open. We cannot uh, force the process is a very gradual process of coming to understand and know the mind as it is and then slowly working with the boundaries of what's tolerable. Playing the edge of what we can accept, what we can understand, what we can acknowledge to ourselves. And it's helpful to be careful about comparing yourself with others. We are Relentless in our pursuit of comparing ourselves to others, and it is a is a very hurtful thing to do to yourself or that we do to ourselves. I want to read a poem that Oh, no, it's not a poem, it's a little prose. It's about being patient. A compassionate person, seeing a butterfly struggling to free itself from its cocoon and wanting to help, very gently loosened the filaments to form an opening. The butterfly was freed, emerged from the cocoon and fluttered about but could not fly. What the compassionate person did not know was that only through the birth struggle can the wings grow strong enough for flight. Its shortened life was spent on the ground. It never knew freedom, never really lived. A lot of us want to tear ourselves out of our cocoon our bondage. It can't be done quickly. Be patient. Struggle. Accept the struggle of opening. It's the only way to freedom. Patience. Keeping an attitude or or, and having an understanding of the value and necessity of patience in one's practice. Secondly, is undertaking a commitment to the truth. If I asked who in this room is a liar, probably none of us would want to acknowledge it. But if I asked how many of us have seriously made a commitment to the truth, maybe none of us could answer that either. It's very difficult to be honest. First of all, with ourselves. And to acknowledge what is actually going on in my experience. And even if we can do that, it's equally or more so difficult to be truthful and honest with others. But it's essential. If we can't be honest with ourselves and acknowledge to ourselves what our experience is, how are we going to recognize our own limits, our own bondage, our own strengths and weaknesses? A commitment to the truth is probably the single most important uh, attitude that we can really cultivate and develop in our spiritual practice. Often because the truth hurts. And I don't mean the truth that says I'm going to tell you what I think about you and if it hurts you that's too bad because it's the truth. That's not what I'm talking about. It's the truth of acknowledging to ourselves our own limits, our own fear, our own confusion, our own misunderstanding, our own hurt from what other people say and do. The extraordinary demands we place upon ourselves to be a certain way, to acknowledge that and to acknowledge the pain of having to carry around who we think we are. Some years ago, when I was in early midlife, um, things had seemed to come together quite wonderfully for me in, in my work. I was a contractor building houses and finally after some years of struggling seemed to have reached some level of success and and had steady work and other things in my life were going along quite well. And uh, I came here and did a short retreat in the winter as was my habit in about January and over the course of a 10 or 12 day retreat I just realized that even though everything was my outward material and relationship life was very together and fulfilling and satisfying and nurturing to me, I still had some significant level of discontent. And I made a decision then within myself that I needed to practice more, that I needed to see more deeply into the nature of this discontent. It wasn't the discontent that was going to be satisfied by a newer car a bigger house, a little more income. It was something else. And when I left that retreat I realized that it was going to be very disruptive to my life and to a lot of people who were dependent on me both in intimate relationships and in business relationships because I was going to leave, I was going to go to Asia and practice. But I made the decision and over the course of 10 or 12 months, went through the processes I needed to go through with people to ease myself out as gently as I could from their life and to shut down my life here in America and go to Asia. After I'd been in Asia for some couple of months, the woman that I left to go there sent me this poem called The Journey. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough, and a wild night, and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds, and there was a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own, that kept you company. As you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, Determined to save the only life you could save. Someone who can take that journey has to have a commitment to the truth. What is actually going on for them? And the ability to share that with others. An attitude of patience, commitment to the truth, and third is trust or confidence. And primarily it's trust and confidence in yourself. Very hard to come by. We live in an age of authorities and we have given our confidence and trust to them. We need to take it back. Especially in spiritual practice or in our own awakening. Who can tell you what you need to know but yourself. We get guidance, yes. We can get a lot of advice, yes. But ultimately, we have to trust our own judgment. We have to trust our own practice. Trust our own knowledge. Trust our intuition. Whatever it is that you you have and know, don't pretend that you don't know. Trust yourself. Make all the mistakes you need to make. Trust yourself. Every mistake that we make, every step that we take and falter, or with a sense of, is this the right step or not? We find out. As soon as you've taken the step, you know whether the ice will hold you or not. Until you do, you don't know. Take the step. If you fall through the ice, well, you'll learn something from it, and you will develop trust. Perseverance. Practice, awakening, anything in life requires tremendous perseverance, especially if it's something worth doing. Don Juan, in in the books by Carlos Castaneda, Don Juan talks about the warrior, being a warrior. And a warrior, we can understand our own path of practice as something like being a warrior, in that a warrior's challenge is not to consider what happens to them as a blessing or a curse, which we often do. Conditions come. And we say, oh, this is wonderful, this is a real blessing. Or other situations, conditions arise and we say, God, what a burden, what a curse I am to have to live with this. And we do that all the time. We evaluate experience or conditions and say, good or bad. The task of a warrior is to put that aside. Not to consider things, blessings or curses, but challenge. Can I be awake right here. That's our challenge as spiritual warriors. Can I be awake with this experience? Can I persevere in my wakefulness even into this condition? And to do that, to persevere, to be able to persevere through what we ultimately need to be able to stay with and persevere through, it's helpful to have a beginner's mind. The mind that is willing to say, this is the first time I've ever done this. Because we come and sit, even in a weekend, we sit 10 times, maybe 8 or 10, 15 times. Well, consider over the next 20 or 30 years how many times you're going to sit and look for the breath. If you don't have the understanding or the attitude of being a beginner, you're going to be an expert. And experts know everything. Or think they do. But they're not in the present moment. They're not free to be with what's happening right now. Don't look to become an expert or an authority. Be a beginner. Start new and fresh each time you sit down. The last sitting is gone. The last retreat is gone. The last great insight is gone. What's happening right now? Can you begin right now practice? Can you begin waking up right now? And that's really the attitude we need. We're always asleep. Now is the moment to wake up, right now. One now after another beginning again in each moment. Patience, commitment to the truth, confidence or trust in oneself, perseverance. And last, or certainly not last, but as many as I want to mention today, is to let go. To open up and let go of whatever it is you're hanging on to. And we hang on to a lot. Certainly we hang on to our material things. Very difficult for us to part with whatever it is, even when we see others who certainly need it more than we do. But far more difficult than than letting go of material things is letting go of pain, letting go of fear, letting go of hurt, letting go of resentment, Letting go of our ideas, letting go of our beliefs, letting go of ourself. Ultimately, everything has to be let go. When we leave here, we're not going to take anything with us. Not our name, not our fame, not our gain. Nothing. Let go now. Enjoy the rest of life. These attitudes, these, 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 these perspectives on our life, very helpful in all of our life, in, across the board in our daily life, very helpful. Patience is not just something in the hall. Patience is needed every step of the way, every time of the day. Same with the commitment to the truth, perseverance, letting go, confidence. How to bring mindfulness, how to bring awareness, how to integrate this practice into daily life? There is no simple formula or answer. There's no, I can't give you a schedule of what to do with your life to make it happen. Cannot. You have your own life, you have your own understandings. You have to work with that there are some things, some guidelines, some suggestions that any of us who have practiced, any of you who have practiced, can can can, no doubt tell stories about how you have tried or struggled or have succeeded in bringing some mindfulness, some attention, some awareness, some consideration into your life. When the Buddha spoke, when the Buddha taught, he spoke uh, the whole of the Buddha's teaching is, broadly, it's a training of the mind. And there are three trainings that the Buddha taught. And they are the, the three parts of the Buddha's Eightfold Noble Path. There's the training in morality or conscious living or conscious relationship with other. And we need training in that. How to have harmonious, healthy relationships with others. There's the training in concentration or samadhi or tranquility. Stabilizing and focusing the mind. Training the mind to be still. To be collected. To be calm. To be tranquil. In the midst of all of this that's going on in life. And with the stable a tranquilized or uh, focused mind, there's the training in understanding or wisdom. Developing the understanding that frees the mind from bondage. Training in morality does not free the mind. Training in tranquility does not free the mind. But they're necessary. And all three of these trainings work together across the whole spectrum of our life to uh, bring the understanding that's needed. to these three trainings, it doesn't happen automatically. It doesn't happen by reading the book. Each of these trainings needs actual practice, needs a, a daily dose of training in morality, concentration, and wisdom. And without creating that space in your day, where you can actually put some, some effort into practicing or understanding, coming to an understanding or practicing meditation, it doesn't happen. All the good intentions in the world, reading every book that's ever been written, doesn't do it. It takes actual making the space in the day, doing what it is you have decided to do. Cannot underestimate, or cannot overestimate, anyway, it's really important to put, to make a commitment to a daily practice, whatever it is. It might only, maybe you can only commit yourself to 15 minutes of sitting. Good. Start there. It's essential. If you fill up your day and then look to see if there's any time left over to practice, there never will be we've all got far too much to do in any one day. When it becomes important enough to you, you'll schedule your practice first, and the rest of the stuff will fill in the day. It takes quite a shift, though, for most of us to go from where we are now, if we aren't doing a daily practice, to scheduling our daily practice first, filling in around it if there's time left over that's quite a quite a change for most of us to go through took me about ten years but it was worth it well hmm, gee what to say time is running out what to do for daily practice i'll give you four choices first which isn't even mentioned in the buddha's eightfold path is begin to recognize that we live with tremendous abundance we have more than we need of everything more stuff isn't going to do it for us. When we live from a place of understanding that we have enough already, then we can share what we have with others. We can let go of what we have. It's really important. Think about what is our attitude if we constantly live from a place of, I don't have enough. I am impoverished. We're going to spend our life getting what we think is enough. How much is enough? Can anyone say? We have enough. Let's face it. We've got enough stuff. Having that understanding, living from that understanding that I have enough and what I have I can share is tremendously freeing. Freeze up your time, frees up your mind, unbelievably. And it feels good. I lived in Burma for about five years. Burma is now, the UN says, fourth poorest country in the world. Now that's poor. That's down there with Bangladesh and a couple of African countries that are really down there. Poor. I mean, per capita income is probably what most of us make in a day or two days. That's what they earn in a year. Dirt poor, very happy people. Why? It's estimated that the average Burman, Burmese person, man, woman, whatever, donates, gives between a quarter and a third of their income to support nuns, monks, pagodas, meditation centers. They're so poor, and they give so much, and they're really happy people. It gives you something to think about. How does that work? Have you ever walked down the street and seen a beggar? And all of us have seen homeless beggars now. You don't have to go to India anymore. And out of some quivering in your own heart, giving them something, Did you ever miss the money that you gave them? Did you ever remember that act and feel good about it later? That happiness that we feel from having been spontaneously generous, sharing what we can with others, every time you reflect on it, brings happiness. Living in that relationship to others where we are both generous and loving, living with the relation, living in relationship to others, where we are considerate of them, that happiness is what we're looking for. And you can't buy it. You can't. You can't read about this in a book. You can't read it in a book. You can't study it in any course. You can't get it in a workshop. That happiness is is free with behavior. But that type of behavior, that type of freedom, that type of happiness doesn't lead to calming the mind, tranquilizing the mind, and developing understanding. To do that, you need to practice meditation. Only meditation. Not just insight, but even tranquility meditations. Practicing loving-kindness. There's a whole, sometimes we do retreats here on just loving-kindness, where what we do is develop our mind and our heart to open to others, to separate or to to erase the boundaries between us. You know, I want you to be happy because you're someone I like. I don't want you to be happy because you're whatever. But to erase those boundaries, those differences, those um, distinctions that we think are so important and to open our heart to everyone all beings equally. Powerful practice. Really powerful. Very necessary. And this practice, developing insight. Developing the understanding of the impermanence, the unsatisfactory nature and the insubstantial or the out-of-controlness of all of our experience. A daily practice of any of these will keep you in the flow of uh, developing your mind, Waken, wakening your mind. There's lots of things to do. There are lots of things that can be done to 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 keep or to bring practice into your life. Sit every day. Make a place in your house where you, where you have, just for sitting. <coughs> sit with others weekly. Surely in, in the town or in a nearby town to where you live, there's a group of people that sit every week and meditate. Find out who they are and sit with them. Great support to sit with other people. Very helpful. Schedule your vacations to do retreats. Also very helpful. Ah. Uh, A number of people have have, have talked to me about where they work, how they can bring mindfulness, or how they can bring awareness into their work situation. And the way I talk to them about it is, take your work, take take the day, and and break it up into the different activities that you do during the day. And then just identify how you can bring mindfulness into that particular 10-minute segment, or that particular activity that you do 20 times a day. Everybody goes to the grocery store, everybody goes to the bank. We all stand in line. Standing meditation is a wonderful thing to learn how to do. Standing in the grocery line, two, or three minutes, five minutes, meditate. Standing in the bank, also an opportunity. Brushing your teeth. Everybody brushes their teeth every day. Once or twice or three times. Good meditation. Good time for meditation. I used to live with a cat, and uh, I didn't used to like cats. And it just so happened that in this household, I was the first one up in the morning, and the cat used to go out at night. First thing in the morning, as soon as it heard someone up, it was at the door. You know how cats have this habit of knocking at the door; they just ching 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 ching. And so, while I was cooking my breakfast, it was wanting its breakfast. And so, I got in the habit of letting it in. And having to feed it, because it's underfoot, you know, it just rubs up against and you can't can't move around, it's just, it's a real hassle. Either if it's outside, it's a hassle, if it's inside, it's a hassle, until it gets fed. So I had to make it my practice. So every morning, first thing, get up, let the cat in, a couple of pets, take the bowl, wash out the bowl, open the canned food, open the can of cat food. Cat food at six in the morning, (laughs) you've got to consider it practice. I mean, it's not something you would choose to do, but it's practice. Well, after a year of this, and also, the cat was in for the day. As soon as I came home, first from work in the afternoon, it needed to be fed again. Lucky me, twice a day, feeding the cat. Make it a practice. If you've got a pet, make it a practice to feed it. Yes, of course we feed it, but I mean, bring mindfulness into it. Reaching, touching, lifting, smelling, disliking, opening, putting, (laughs) petting, whatever it is. No, take that whole 10-minute segment. Break it down. Make it into a practice where you really bring mindfulness into that. (coughs) When you're brushing your teeth, actually brush your teeth. Not plan your day. Lots of things to do. The other thing. Each of us has our own path. We have to believe that. We have to trust that. We have to, to find out what our path is by taking the next step. It's not, it's not necessary for to sit here and say, okay, for the next week, or for the next month, or for the next year, I'm going to do this, 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 and this, and this. I'm going to get my practice together. I'm going to get mindfulness into my life. That's not the way to do it. Just one small thing at a time. Just this week, maybe today, I'll try to pay attention to brushing my teeth. And after we get that down to where we're pretty good at, staying present while we brush our teeth, then we take up feeding the cat. And after a couple of months of that, then we take up something else. Just the next step will reveal what needs to be done or can be done next. Don't burden yourself with a grand plan. It's just too much. Just a little step at a time. And as you take one step, the next step will appear. You don't have to know where you're going at this point. All you need to do is take the next step. So, that's enough. For now. And uh, there's about six minutes before lunch. So, we can sit quietly for a couple minutes, or we can talk questions if you want. Yeah? I just ask one very one question? You said you used to work in construction. Yeah. What do you do now, Steve, other than the retreats and teaching, and where do you do it? Well, um, just, uh, I was here for the three-month course, you know, in the fall, and then. After that, in December, I drove to California, where I'm setting up residence, mm-hmm. in, uh, north, just around the San Francisco Bay Area, and because uh, I, I haven't really lived any place for some years. I've just been traveling around, and um, it's gotten to be too difficult to just keep traveling. So I want to s- stay in one place. And from there, I go to teach. So I come here and teach for a couple of for 10 days and then I go back there. And then I'm home for 5 or 6 days and I go to Seattle. And I'll come be there for a couple of weeks and I'll come back for a few days. Then I go to Australia for a month. So it's all I'm doing for work, so to speak, but it's full time. <laughs> I mean, it takes up it takes a lot of time to just keep things organized and and to recover and recuperate and regenerate and so I'm doing these, these type of retreats, silent uh, insight retreats, and this year I've begun to teach uh, some workshops and seminars in Buddhist psychology, the Abhidhamma, so some classes and, and weekend workshops and things like that in Buddhist psychology. I have uh, one question, you said uh, you know three um, areas of practice, you know, the morality conscious living and then the, uh, the concentration and it's a and wisdom too could you I kind of pretty much understand how to practice the first two items but could you give like an example of how in daily life you can practice the wisdom aspect yeah doing doing a meditation practice is the foundation for the development of wisdom um, but even uh, reading books, huh? you can you can get a lot from from uh, well-written books for understanding, you know, a lot of understanding from well-written books. Particularly, you know, uh, people like the Dalai Lama, Thich Nhat Hanh, uh the other teachers that teach here, uh, can get a lot of uh, insight into, you know, just how to understand. Uh, the conditions that we live with in our life, but developing your own practice and, and deepening your understanding of uh, an impermanence, the uh, unsatisfactory nature of, or the unfulfilling nature of experience, and the uh, insubstantiality, or the out-of-controlness, developing that understanding is, in some ways, sufficient wisdom. So before that we had a choice of two things to ask questions and be in silence yeah and all week, all weekend long I created the silence. But when you ask that question my automatic response was to go into silence yeah. and I don't say that to make anyone who feels like asking questions feel that that's not the right thing to do, but I just wanted to say that, because that was my truth. Right. And I, I think it's because of the separation. The separation from this experience. Oh, having to leave, you mean? Yes. Leaving this experience? Ah, yeah. And that, that there was no way for me to deal with it other than to go into silence? Yeah. 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 Thank you. In fact. uh, Why don't we sit in silence for a couple minutes?